Well, thank you. Um, it's great to meet you all. Um, only China would draw such a broad, diverse set of interests and in people, I think. Um, so it's great to see people of all um, backgrounds and interests um, come to, to talk about China. Um, I feel like I've been talking about China uh, my entire life. Um, and it's one of those subjects that, if you've been doing it for as long as some of us have, you, um, you really never get tired of it. And uh, I thought what I would do is start off with a little bit of uh, bi biographical information by way of explanation so that you understand how I got to be in Cambridge this afternoon talking about China and the internet and digital media. Um, I uh, was a teenager in the late 1960s and uh, protested in Washington in the Vietnam War, took the train from Philadelphia to D.C. with my father, much to his chagrin. I told him that you know if he wanted to bond with his teenage son, he was going to have to do some of the things that I wanted to do. So that convinced him. And interestingly enough, last week I had the same experience with my own teenage son. I won't tell you what he wanted to do. Um, but um, it, I think some of those in influences in my life um, created an interest in China when I was in college. And I majored in Chinese history and philosophy. I, I read Dream of the Red Chamber for three years constantly and successfully wrote my senior thesis on it as an undergraduate. So um, when I've had enough beer and enough friends around, you know, Ming Dynasty poetry is of great interest. Um, the, the first interest in China really started um, after college when I was living here in Cambridge, studying Mandarin in the basement of some building over there in the Harvard Chinese Language Training Program, which is now sort of mainstreamed into the university, I think. And um, got convinced that I wanted to go to China to do, I don't know what, but I figured that it was different enough in 1979 and 1980 that something would come of it. And I, as a young man, would find something worthy of the rest of my life by going to China. So it's very idealistic. China had just opened up. Carter had just normalized relations in 1979. Very few Caucasians and even very few overseas Chinese had really spent a considerable amount of time in China. Visiting was organized in groups and, and everyone had a watcher. And it was a very different situation than it is today. So I arrived in China in 1980 in May um, to teach English and American history at a university in Hunan province in South China. And um, I can admit now I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I was trained as an, English language te uh, as an English teacher in college, so I had teacher training. I knew how to prepare lessons. I, I could actually teach something. Um, and I had a lot of knowledge, I think, built up. And I was able to find a position um, teaching at Changsha Railway Institute in Hunan province. And the way I got that was I went to New York on a bus, and I went to the Chinese permanent mission at the UN because they had no embassy at that point. And I knocked on the door and I asked for an application. And so they you know, slammed, slammed the shut, shutter shut. 
And uh, then a few minutes later, it opened up again with just as much fury and passion, and out came an application. And I took the application and got a passport photo, filled it out, and then knocked on the door again and shoved it back through. And they said, you know, we'll call you. So I got on a bus, came back to Boston, and three weeks later they called me. They said, can you be on an airplane in three weeks? Because we have a teaching assignment that just opened up, and we'd love to have you go teach English and American history in Changsha and Hunan province. Well, most of you know Chinese geography as well as Chinese political history. Um, Hunan is very hot and muggy, south of the Yangtze River, one of the furnaces of South China, and um, a political center. Obviously, Shaoshan, where Mao was born, is nearby. Mao spent his formative years at Hunan uh, Teachers College in, uh, in Changsha, uh, as the, uh, like, as the uh, myth goes, uh, fomenting revolution in his early days. And in 1980, it was barely out of the Cultural Revolution, culturally. And it had the added element that the Chinese Vietnam War had just ended, border war. So Hunan was a staging ground for that. So I remember we used to, we used to hear the rumbling of, 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 of trucks headed north um, as they were re- well after the war, but they were redeploying you know, units back up north. So it was an interesting time to be in South China. There were four Caucasians in Changsha in 1980, and maybe a couple of dozen Huachiao, overseas Chinese, maybe a couple dozen, mostly from the Philippines, from maybe Malaysia, places like that. Very few from, from you know, North America or anything. So it was very isolating. Um, we lived in a situation where I lived on campus, which was uh, the, the biggest victory I achieved when I lived in China was to actually convince the dean that, you know, that I wouldn't pollute the entire senior class if I actually lived on campus versus in a hotel downtown. Um, and it was, a great, it was a great almost two years. Um, living and working there. Um, the thing I missed most was peanut butter. Um, but from a technology perspective and a living in China perspective, there was no technology as we know it today. And no phones. I never got a phone call the whole time I was there. Um, I wrote letters to my girlfriend, now my wife of many years, and I had a journal and I would take a piece of paper and I'd get carbon double-sided carbon paper and put it in and write the letter and so the carbon copy would end up in my journal. And I would mail the letter and it would take four or five weeks easily to get back to the States. Um, So there was no communications of any type. Um, Commercially, we used coupons to buy things. Currency was really worthless. The biggest denomination of the um, renminbi currency was... uh, uh, Ten yuan. In nineteen, in the spring of nineteen eighty, the biggest denomination was ten. Today, it's still only a hundred, right? So um, when I got paid, you know, it was like this every month. But I was only making, I don't know, seventy-five dollars, fifty dollars a month, something like that. It was just, it wasn't relevant. What you really wanted was how many ration coupons was I going to get that month. Did the, did the allocation for, you know, rice go up or, you know, uh, 
meet and, 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 and when we were lucky, you know, we would get coupons for con- consumer goods, a fan, electric fan. That was a big deal. Um, black and white TVs were not even ubiquitous in 1980 yet. Watches, just simple, simple watches who hadn't even really started spreading across wide amounts of the cities yet. So there was really no technology. It was almost, it, it was almost as if time had stood, sti- stood still since, you know, since 1930, 1935, when the Civil War and the invasion, the Japanese invasion, and all of that started through all the political campaigns. It was almost as if everything had, had essentially stood still. So from our perspective, um, you know, the people who I live with or lived at other universities in Changsha um, in those years, it, they were probably some of the best years of our lives. Um, we learned an incredible amount about Chinese people, Chinese culture, Chinese history, about ourselves as individuals. And it, it really, other than uh, my marriage and my children, is clearly the most, defined, most important defining experience of my life in many, many, many ways. And particularly now, where China has gone from a situation where you could say it stood still from you know, the, just before the war to 1980, you go a situation now between 1980 and 2006 when it has moved the economic equivalent of 1900 to 2000 here in the U.S. If you look at what people value, the evidence of a consumer economy, um, communication itself, and how people communicate with each other. It has, China is in a frenzy. I mean, there, I don't think there is another culture that I'm aware of in history that has experienced such rapid, accelerated access to new influences in such a short period of time. I'm sure there may be, but the point is that you know, it's, it's incredibly intense um, emotionally, psychologically, um, not to mention economically, politically, from an interpersonal perspective. It's a, China's just a crazy place, and it's a crazy place because of the function of time and the intensity of change within that, basically in, within the last 25 years. So I talk to a lot of businessmen and women these days about China, and everyone's excited. You know, ah, China's not communist anymore. We're going to go and we're going to sell a pencil to a billion people, and we're going to make a lot of money. And it's the same damn thought that was evident in the you know 1860s and 1880s and 1890s when American trades you know people went from from Boston in those days all the way to China, trying to you know find a way to sell. American technology that had come out of the Industrial Revolution out of England and the Industrial Revolution into this burgeoning um, country with um, you know, an agrarian economy and they were going to make millions. It's the same thing. American businessmen and women haven't changed their attitude to China in 100 years. We're going to take our technology and our know-how and our expertise and all of our, our chutzpah and we're going to go sell it to the Chinese and we're going to make a lot of money. We'll come back to that later on. But over the years, start from 1980, lived in China you know, pretty um, consistently through to about 87, came back to the U.S. for various reasons, most of which were, had involved um, raising my, my children, 
and um, was not in China after um, April 1989. Um, so I was not in China during the Tiananmen activity. When um, went back to China in 1990, lived in Hong Kong for several years, and then throughout the 90s went back and forth to China, Taiwan, Hong Kong for business purposes. Um, and for the last almost three years have been um, living pretty consistently in Shanghai where my business is located and my partner um, and I run a small venture capital company. So, um, so my perspective um, is, is, goes back 25 years and it starts from a basis of basically agrarian technology moving to what, what's happening today in China. Um, for a lot of Westerners who are, I should say, Caucasian Westerners as opposed to be ethnic Chinese Westerners, um, because for me, being Western is a cultural statement. It's not necessarily an ethnic statement. Because there's lots of Asians that are culturally Western. Um, so for Westerners, um, China has this incredible fashion, fascination today because it is, it is open and it is booming. So I'm sure you've heard a lot of statistics, but there's some very interesting statistics just sort of ground our discussion. There are 400 million mobile phone users in China today. You, who knows the population of, you, of the U.S.? <laughs> Less than 400 million. Yeah, about 300 now. It's about 300 million. There's 5 million new mobile subscribers every month in China, and that's been happening since 2002. Unabated, every month, 5,000 new mobile phone subscribers. There are approximately 5,000 new fixed line subscribers every month as well in China. But there are more mobile phone users by a wide margin than there are fixed line users in China. So this is a very good example of what's happened in technology in China. Because in 1983, when I lived in Beijing, we um, lived in the western part of the city on a college campus. And we, um, we had a lot of trouble making phone calls because in those days, Beijing had an old, 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 old analog switch, telephone switch. And the way it worked was, I don't know if you know anything about rotary phone technology, but when you dial, dial a number, every dial you make takes you in a concentric circle farther away from where you are and goes through a switch. And if that switch is busy, then because it's switch technology, analog switch technology, you have to go back and start again. Right? So we'd be sitting in the western part of the city trying to call somebody downtown, and we'd get to you know, number four out of seven and got a busy signal, and we'd have to go back and start again. So it was still easier to get on your bicycle and drive down, ride down Tiananmen, I mean, um, Chang'an Avenue you know, to where you're trying to get to, to see somebody on the other side of town than it was to try to make a phone call. So now you're in a situation where mobile phones are... I didn't bring my fancy Chinese phone with me. It's in my bag. ...are um, basically ubiquitous. Everyone has a phone. And no one uses their fixed line, effectively. So um, it's very, very interesting also to understand that, that because of the volume of Chinese that use mobile phones, innovation has boomed in China. So about three weeks ago, I added a ringback tone to my, my U.S. phone. Do you guys know what ringback tones are? 
What's the ring back now? When you call somebody, what do you hear? Um, like, not, not the ring tone that they hear, but what the person calling hears. Yeah, so instead of the ring, 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 like when I call you, I hear ring, 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 right? So when you call me now, you hear uh, the Doobie Brothers <laughs> on my phone. You don't hear ring, ring, ring. So that's an innovation. It, you know, it comes from Asia. I don't know where it originated, whether it was in Korea or Japan or China, but it's been in China for two years. Right? It's just starting here. It's just starting here. Now, you could say, oh, okay, it's a dollar a month. You know, it's a stupid little consumer service, and it's not that interesting. You could say that. Or you could say, or you could look at it differently and say that, you know, because it's a, such a huge consumer market, there's innovation happening there that here in the U.S. We don't even, we're not even aware of. We're no longer setting the standard. We're no longer setting the leading edge in some areas. Now, now we've experienced this, this same phenomenon after the war with Germany, after the war with Japan, and then with South Korea, then with Hong Kong, then with Singapore. Um, so we've had this as Americans before, but we've never had it with those damn communists in China. And this is actually, I, sorry, I don't mean to swear, but this is, a, this is the issue. This is the big issue, in my opinion, is that this country and this culture is very frightened that all those Chinese over there that we're trying to sell our technology to for the last hundred years are actually now getting to a point where they could become leaders and we could become the followers. And that scares us to death. I'm talking emotion now. Now there's plenty of examples. I'm American, you know, I want the best for my country. I want American technology and intellectual property to remain the best in the world forever. And I'm a strong supporter of that as a venture capital investor and and all of that. But the truth is that it's not going to be in every segment in every manner anymore at all because you still have the Germans innovating, you still have the Japanese innovating, you have all the Asian tigers innovating and now you have China innovating. Right? And it's very, very threatening. South Korea. South Korea has mobile TV that is ubiquitous. Mobile TV that's ubiquitous already. Now, smaller population, you know, higher penetration of technology, consumers are, you know, are early adopters in ways that we aren't, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is that things are changing very quickly. So, um, so the, if we take some of those thoughts and we talk about the Internet in China, I have um, a little bit of a contrarian view about the Internet in China. Because I don't think the internet is what it's about in China. I think it's the mobile network and mobile activity is what it's about in China. The wireline internet sitting, looking through a browser at very multimedia rich, very content deep, um, very integrated web environments is not what the Chinese consumer spends their time doing, whether it's entertainment or research or, or anything. Now, here in the U.S., because mobile phones came later than the Internet, we are Internet-centric. There's a lot of good reason for it, right? We, we, don't, we just don't have the same cultural dynamic as a lot of Asian countries, and particularly China. So for me, for me what, when we talk about sort of the Internet technology issues, it, it's more centric on the mobile network for me than it is on the Internet. There's only 100 million, 125 million internet users. 
Now, they're also growing extremely rapidly. And uh, most of those users um, are, are online um, playing games on the NetEase portal. Or they're in internet cafes, you know, playing an uh, internet game with my son in Needham, who's an avid gamer, right? And he constantly is online with his buddies in China. And they know each other because they're talking on their voiceover IP chat, chat room simultaneous with the game. So that's very interesting, right? That's a, that's, a, that's, that's a side of the Internet that is more predominant when you think of the Internet in China among the, the if you will, the average consumer. The average consumer doesn't go online to... Um, research cars or research consumer goods or, you know, even to read news. They go online, you know, to, to participate in community activities such as gaming. Because gaming is valuable in China and popular in China because it's a community activity. It brings people together. That's why there's 5 million new mobile phone users every month in China because the, the, the culture is about community. It's about talking. It's about communicating with each other. You know, those of you who speak Chinese language, Chinese um, speak Mandarin, know also that Chinese as a language is very repetitive. You say the same thing in different ways when you're having a conversation. You know, often you'll repeat yourself, and it's a way—it's a cultural way of, of talking, right? And it used to annoy the hell out of me. Say, you said that already. Why are you telling me again? Well, it's because it's part of the communication process. Well, that is music to the ears of a mobile phone carrier. <laughs> right? Because if I'm going to sit here talking to you know, my friend, I'm going to talk for a long time. So minutes of use, which is the metric that mobile phone carriers like to look at, it's very high. It's very high. You sit on the phone, you talk, talk, talk. And then the other thing you do is you send SMS messages. So here, SMS... You know, we barely know what SMS is here, right? In Asia and parts of China, SMS is used as a proxy for, for the Internet, basically. You can send SMSs and do search. You can search databases using SMS technology. You can search for restaurants. You can search for bars. You can search for shops. You can search for sales, right? You can go, you know, there's a, there's a, a beta deployment in Guangzhou, in one of the walking street districts where they have um, location-based services ad, ad placements happening. You walk down, if you subscribe, you subscribe to the service, you walk in, into this area, and there's a sign that says, if you want to subscribe, send, send subscribe to this short code, 8558. And then you get a message back, and you're subscribed. That means that 5 yuan or whatever it is goes onto your phone bill. You subscribe. And then you walk down the street, and and the carrier knows that you've subscribed to the service. So you get ads served to your phone from the, from the shopkeepers nearby. Sales. We're having a sale today. You want to come in and look at this new pair of shoes? You want to come in and look at this? Right? That's a live deployment that's going on. Right? So t that's really interesting. Right? That's interesting innovation. Here we'd be worried about privacy issues. We'd be worried about... You know, pricing issues, we'd be worried about all these things that regulated capitalism has come to know and love. But in China, where you have unregulated capitalism, a lot of these innovations are actually more, more possible. Can I ask why the money flows that direction? 
you would think that that they would pay you to reduce your phone bill if uh, for the opportunity to have ads served that way. In other words, why do you pay money? You pay to subscribe to the service. Right. Right. But presumably the advertisers were walking through in of the stores past which you were walking mm -hmm. would be willing to pay to gain access to you. Yeah, they're paying they're paying the carrier to serve the SMS message onto your phone. The carrier is paying for the ad placement. The why you also then pay. Well, because, because the carrier can make money. No, but why the consumer would want to pay. Right. Well, because the carrier can make money off the consumer. Why would the consumer do it, you mean? Right. Well, because they have no other way of, of, of getting the information. So they want to receive advertising. Yeah, they want to receive. They want to know. But it's also because, deals. Because they're going to get the deal. It's all priced around getting the deal. If so you're, kind of if you can get a deal, yeah. Right. So it's not just advertising, you know, buy the whatever thing. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I didn't yeah. describe it correctly. It's actual, actionable advertising. You get an ad. You walk in the store. You show them. You have the message, and you get a discount. Ah, okay. that's right. different. Yeah. You get something immediate. It's not general, broad purpose advertising. Right. 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 The way that they advertise in this country. Right. Well, I mean, we're looking at LBS here too. Location-based services, I think, is a big is a big direction everyone is thought thinking about it. But it's in, it's interesting to actually see it operating. So anyway, I just there's lots of examples, but the point is that um, carriers. The the other point around around your question is that why would why would a consumer pay pay five UN a month to subscribe to that service? Five yuan is throwaway money for a middle-class consumer in Guangzhou, and and Cantonese love to be fashionable, right? So they'll go to the bar with their friends in the evening and say, "Look what I found! I found this cool service." The viral effect is is you know incredible, and the carriers are just sitting there printing money. The most profitable mobile phone carriers in the world are China Mobile and China Unicom in the world. And you can check, go to NYSE's, you know, go to their websites and download their annual reports and their K-1s. They're the most profitable companies in the world. They have balance sheets to die for. They have more capital on their balance sheets than they know what to do with. So I think that... Um, to summarize a bit of this first discussion is, what is China? Is China a communist country trying to be capitalistic? Is China a, um, a country struggling with its past to find its future? You know, what is China today? Um, to, me, to me, I think that, um, in my mind, China's never been a communist country. It's never even been a socialist country in any true sense of theoretical socialism or practical socialism as practiced in Europe. It's been a one-party dictatorship. And Mao and everybody else that followed him has done everything in their power to maintain their position. And they've adopted any ideology or any perspective that will suit their purpose to stay in power. Now, if you look at Chinese history, in the thousands of years of Chinese history, you'll say to yourself, this is not new. There have been peasant rebellions that have toppled dynasties and come to power that have been immediately followed by dictatorships. 
many, many, many times in history in China. Because what happens when a dynasty falls is, is a lack of union. And China is a collection of countries, not one country. So when you have anarchy, you need to have order. So the revolution breeds disintegration of centralized control, which breeds anarchy, which fuels the creation of a strong leader. The strong leader comes to power, consolidates power, and moves toward slowly toward a position of more and more benevolence over time as things stabilize and develop. So what we're experiencing now, I, I don't pretend to be an, uh, an absolute historian, but I don't think it's anything new. It has a modern flavor to it and has a modern picture to it, but it's nothing new. And I think that's the way lots of Chinese view it. They view it as, hey, this is the cycle. You know, We're in the cycle. We haven't changed the cycle. Just because we had communism and socialism and political campaigns and, and this and this and this, it doesn't mean the cycle's any different. The cycle is the same. So I think a lot of people that I deal with that are my generation are, you know, went to college right after the Cultural Revolution or in their late 40s, 50s, and 60s. They have a different view on what's happening. They have a patient view of what's happening. Right? We're in the cycle. So when we get to contentious issues like um, you know, trade balance with the U.S., the currency equivalency to the U.S. dollar, um, IP law, IP protection, uh, human rights, uh, all of these issues, uh, they're all very important issues, and they all have very important positions that need to be defended on principle. However, these are all, I think, can be viewed as issues in the cycle as well. And I think that a lot of my Chinese friends um, look at these issues from that perspective. Why are we getting so worked up over this stuff? It's important, and I agree with the principle. I'm just saying hypothetically, yeah, it's important, I agree with the principle. However, in the grander scheme of things, if we look at the cycle, any particular issue is not as important as it might seem in any given day. And that's a very different perspective. You sort of have to live this perspective, I think, and, 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 and internalize it, I think, to really sort of feel it. Um, so I think that that explains partially why you know, large amounts of the population don't even know what 1989 was. I have very good friends that are educated. <laughs> you know, I ask, do you remember 1989 and what happened and how big an impact it had on the world? Yeah, yeah, I mean, there were some disturbances in Beijing. I remember that. Beyond that, you know, it didn't really have a big impact on my life. And you're looking like, in shock? How can that be? And part of the reason is because of technology, I believe because of technology. Because the, uh, the entrance of technology into China and the adoption of consumer goods, the adoption of communication methodologies, this, this hyper... Uh, intense movement from 1980 to 2006 in terms of how technology is implemented across the society is pushing people in a direction that there's almost a values vacuum, vacuum in some respect, right? Technology, consumerism, if we think technology and consumerism was a big impact on the U.S. in the 1950s and 60s, right? I mean, my parents used to, used to be really strict about 
you know, we could only listen to the radio, you know, from 8 to 9 p.m. or 7 to 8 p.m., whatever it was, right? That was really a big deal. And we, we were getting polluted by all this, you know, cartoons, you know, and the Beatles and all this craziness, right? You can imagine if all of that from 1950, 1960, the whole 60s movement, the 70s, the 80s, think of that all being compressed into seven or eight years, from a cultural change, a values change, a norm change, adoption of technology, all of that. It's the compression and the intensity of, of technology adoption, whether it's in consumer goods or autos or banking or communications, whatever it is. That's what causes this, this, this phenomenon to occur that's happening in China. It's going to stay this way for a while. It's not going to change this year or next year. It's going to be this way for 10 more years, which is why myself as a, as a technology investor... You know, we are putting as much money to work as we can, as fast as we can, because we think that the opportunity of investing in digital media companies and internet companies and wireless companies and chip companies in China is, is, is enormous. And our basic investment philosophy is we're going to invest and we're going to wait, because all we believe we have to do is ride the time value of money. Right? The time value of money is our basic investment principle. We make good, solid investment now. And we manage that investment, and, and, and the upward curve of the economy, it will go up and down, but the upward curve and the value of that investment over time will deliver great returns. So we don't need to do you know, Google to $500 a share in three years. That type of investing is once in a lifetime. Real investing is slogging it out and making good investments and doing it over time. And China is a place and a market that resembles the 1950s and 60s here in the U.S. where technology is being adopted, consumerism is starting, and, and there's going to be a lot of winners, a lot of winners over a course of 10 years or 15 years from an investing point of view. And that's what we're after. Now, along the way, we're going to have to make some very hard decisions. What do we invest in and why? Right? We talked last time about this question, right? What, where we are Americans, we believe in American values. We abide by American law. If we cross American law in China, we'll get put in jail in the U.S. So we're not out there as cowboys doing anything we want or anything we think we can get away with. That type of investment is, there are people that do that, but that's not what we do. So we do need to make ethical judgments. We do need to decide, is this company going to really abide by intellectual property rules? Are they going to protect what they have? And are they, going to, are they going to steal from other people and claim it's theirs? And, and, and are we going to benefit from that? And we have to make a judgment about those things. It's very, very difficult. Uh, you know, probably impossible to get 100% accuracy there. But you have to make a judgment with all the best ability you have. And then you have to question that decision again before you, make it, before you put your money down. Because every time you push the button to wire the money into a Chinese company, you will never get that money back unless the investment is a success. So what we tell all of our investors, you invest with us, you have to be prepared to walk away with zero. In fact, it'll cost you money in legal fees. So if you want to invest a million dollars with us, you'd be prepared to write off every single penny and pay your attorney $20,000 for the right to do that before you give us your money. 
because that's the assumption you have to go in with. And if you go in with that assumption and I return $10 million to you after five years, you're going to be very happy. But if I, if I tell you, you know, it's zero, then I was honest with you. Right? And on that basis, investing in China and Chinese technology companies is a, is a, is a positive proposition. Um, a lot of people are thinking that you know China, you can make a lot of easy money in China. And you can, you know, traders make easy money. It's not easy, but people have been making money out of the Guang, Guangzhou trade fair for many, 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 many years. And there's lots of people that can trade and be middlemen. I mean, Hong Kong, Hong Kong exists because of the principle of playing a middleman. That's how Hong Kong was created, and that's how it still functions today. And there's lots and lots of people that can make a lot of money doing that. That's one way that China is different than India. India does not have a Hong Kong. I, w- I wrote a paper on this about five years ago. Why, if India had a Hong Kong, India would be more similar to China today. Why? Because Hong, Hong Kong allows Western-style investment activity to occur inside a basically an emerging economy. And it creates a class of financiers and entrepreneurs that know how to do business, you know, upriver in Guangzhou or Shanghai or Wuhan or Nanjing, but can be accountable to Western financial standards. And India's never had that. Goa, you know, maybe, but not really. And if they had had something like that, I mean, of course you wouldn't wish that you know, there was a colonial presence in, in, your, in your country, although India was a colonial country for a very long time. But economically, Hong Kong has played this incredibly important role to allow China to open. Now they're struggling to say, okay, now we, allow China, we help China get open. Now what do we do? We, we were successful beyond our wildest dreams. Now what do we do? And Hong Kong is figuring that out, I think, quite successfully in the, recently, in the last couple of years. One reason is because they now have a Disneyland in Hong Kong. <laughs> which is no small matter, attracts an enormous number of tourists who bring, who bring you know, foreign currency from all over Asia, not just China. So I, I get, I'm getting a little random now in my comments, but um, I just thought I would start off by giving you some perspective and talk a little bit about what's important to us as investors. Um, and I guess the, the, the summary comment would be that um, China is, um, is a fascinating place, um, but until you have lost money as an investor or been entirely frustrated as a tourist or totally confused by you know, not knowing enough Chinese and trying to communicate, and until you have been inside and failed, I mean failure in a, in a good sense, right? unless you've been frustrated and failed and had experiences that are negative in some respect. You, know, you don't have a prayer of understanding how to operate in that country. You just, you just don't. You, you have the illusion of it. And you're on the, you know, the 82nd floor in the Grand Hyatt in Pudong, you know, and you've arrived in China to do a deal, and you're leaving the next day. <laughs> that deal's not going to work. It's not going to work. And, and that's where businessmen and women today are really making enormous mistakes, enormous mistakes, because they don't, they don't know from anything. 
And you, you, that's not good practice anywhere in the world. That's not unique to China, right? But China is really this like flies, flies on a dead cow. They're just, everybody is, is, is arriving with their carpet bags. And, and, and if, you have, if you who are earlier in your careers have any ability to influence, you know, um, go to China, be frustrated, be lost, you know, be angry, uh, fail, um, you know, get in a fight, you know, understand what's going on because if you're up here, you know, you'll just always stay up here. So that's a perspective that I, I bring. I was lucky enough to be able to go to China a very long time ago. It seems like a long time ago. And, and the, the, the thing that really makes my, my day is that my, my daughter, who's a freshman in college, just declared that she's definitely going to continue studying Chinese and major in East Asian studies. So I have two children. So one is already in the bag. <laughs> and I'm working on my son, who's uh, on the margin. So hopefully we can pass on some of the perspective. So maybe just take maybe take some questions. It's like I it was all over the place. So can we actually just complete the introductions because a few people have arrived since oh. we, we went around and introduced ourselves before. I think if you remember, do you want to start by introducing yourselves? If you just say your name and and you might have to speak up. I'm also from China. Uh, I'm a student uh, of Harvard Law School. Previously, I worked for uh, uh, the Shanghai office of Jones Day as a practicing lawyer, uh, doing some modernization job also, work also, <coughs> with the capital of work. Lucas DeLeo, World Trade Center, Boston. Um, I'm Christina Shi. I'm a freshman at the college, and I was born in China. Yeah. Where in China? Fuzhou. Suzhou? Fuzhou. Oh, Fuzhou. Mm. I'm Terry Fisher. I'm the director of the center. This is my noisy dog, Nika. So <laughs> <laughs> Lovely dog. So Mary had a question, I think. Oh, that's right. Um, I was in Harbin in the fall of 88. And at that time, the Cultural Revolution was still pretty fresh in people's minds, even though it had been, you know, a number of years. And I'm just thinking of the people I knew from that time, if I picture them working with location-based services, I think, well, I would, I would expect them to be skeptical because they didn't like the idea of dossiers being kept on them. So I would think they would have privacy concerns. So I was wondering if, if the older generation that did experience the Cultural Revolution is a bit more reserved about some of these new technologies, or if that's just part of the cycle that they recognize and they say, well, we don't, we don't care so much about that. Oh, I think your assessment is right. I think uh, older generation, so 60 and above, would be very skeptical, but not on a of a phone, but what else a phone could do, I think they would be skeptical. They'd probably never go online, probably wouldn't use a PC. I mean, there's exceptions, right? But we're stereotyping, so probably not. Everything we talked about, the innovation, is all the 20-somethings. Mm -hmm. It's all, and it's not teenagers necessarily, because the teenagers are still controlled by their mothers in China, right? It's the 20-somethings that are out of college, beginning to have a first job, 20 to, you know, early 30s. 
that's the generation. That's the age where everything's happening. And you see, I think you see a big, big difference. It's like, I mean, think about, um, I, I don't know what your generational position is, but um, if, if some of the analogy might be that parents who grew up in the Depression in the U.S., right, in the 20s and 30s, right, they have a very specific um, perspective on waste and, you know, consumerism and all of that. They're very skeptical about all of that stuff. Those are my parents, right, or even my grandparents, right? And that's the, that's the generation I think that you're talking about mm -hmm. would be similar because they grew up, even though they lived through the Cultural Revolution, right, mm -hmm. but they, they survived it. So there's a certain emotion attached to that to say, if we can get through this, you know, what do we need all this extra stuff for? Right? We lived on nothing. And now we have all this excess, which is great for the younger generation. Right? We want it for the younger generation. So they're but not for suspicious us, of the technology as allowing a recurrence of repression? Well, if I could interject there, I, I get the sense from my time living in China, that anybody who's experienced that period of time has always operated in the, under the assumption that they have no privacy anyway. And so I, I don't think that they would have expectations of privacy or denial of privacy because, I mean, when I was working in China, I operated on the assumption that everything I did was on the record, you know, and, and that if I wanted to have a truly private conversation, it would have to be in a field. And I, I think anybody who's from the Cultural Revolution generation automatically assumes that and would never trust any technology or any company to preserve their privacy, no matter how many guarantees they have. I mean, I, I don't know what you think, but... I, I agree. I, I agree, and I also think that... I think our perspective on these issues is different than, than my Chinese friend's perspective, mm -hmm. because what my Chinese friends know how to do is adapt. Right? They adapt to the situation. Just like you're saying. So if everything is, 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 if there is no privacy, then you run your life differently. You don't sit around and complain, no, there's no privacy, there's no privacy, there's no privacy. That's not the attitude. That's sort of what we would do, right? We would start protesting or we would object or whatever. In the, in the China context, it's different. It's adaption. You have to adapt and you have to mold and you have to survive and you have to find a way around it. So you find a way to have a private communication. You deal with it. It becomes the, your way of life. And you don't know any, any, any differently. Right. And it's not bad or good. It's just a way. Mm -hmm. And it's not, I don't put a judgment on it because how can you put a judgment on, on that? Mm -hmm. right? But it is very, a very different perspective. And then, you know, it's like, it's like it's water. It's finding the path of least resistance. And then once you find it, then you open the, open the dam and everyone flows in the same way. That's the way I would look at it. And I have a lot of friends who live that way. I live that way too. My biggest water flow example is that I leave my office at 5.30 on a rainy day. Forget it. There's no cabs. I can't get a cab. I can't, I can't get you know, 20 minutes to my apartment. Forget it. So I'm not going to go down there and stand in line and fight, and then everyone's cutting the line. Everyone's, you know, fighting for this, fighting for that. Everyone's trying to get to the front of the line. Well, why do that? So I just work for another three hours. <laughs> just stay in the office. And then you go out at, you know, 9 o'clock, and there's lots of cabs. It's a silly example, right? But it is true. It, you have to find ways. You can't fight your way onto the bus, right? 
you take a different route. And China is filled with that, filled with those examples. And I think a lot of people find ways to deal with, you know, with the technology, to deal with technology in the same way, whether it's the lack of privacy online or lack of privacy on your your SMS communication or whatever, and just adapt. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering, you know, the same thing about the adapting. I think what's happened to the, um, at least in what I've seen, um, Chinese people and in regards to the news, um, for the most part, like, because of the Cultural Revolution or whatever, like, it feels like most Chinese people aren't interested in the news. And like what they're much more interested in is you know tabloids and stuff. So that even now with the advent of blogs and all of that in China, like there's still no really good way to find out like the news, international news, and, and Chinese news, you know, regardless of censorship. What do you think that will? Do you think that will change in China, or do you have a different opinion about the situation? It's a very. I think it's a very broad. It's a good question. A very broad question very hard to stereotype. I think I think in the countryside, in the rural areas where what's the current number? Seventy percent of the people live? Right? Maybe sixty something, seventy percent. I think international news is irrelevant. And I think national news is irrelevant. Like if you live in Cincinnati, right? You care about national news. If you live in a little town in the middle of Ohio, you probably care, right? But I don't think somebody who lives outside, pick a place, you know, go upriver from Wuhan an hour, right, and pick a small industrial city along the Yangtze River, right? I don't think the people that live in that town of 500,000 people, you know, really care. I just don't think it's relevant to their lives. What's relevant to their lives is what's, what's close by. And in that sense, news is also, news doesn't matter because what's, what's important are the relationships that those people have. The relationships they have at work, the relationships they have in their, in their residential area or their relatives, that's the world. That's the world. Now you could say that's, you know, it's just isolating and, and a lack of education, a lack of exposure, all those things may, may in fact be true. But I also think what's true is the reality is true. Right? Now, if you look at the cities, if you look at you know, tier one cities, right? Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, whoever else you want to think is a tier one city, right? Tianjin, Wuhan, Nanjing, all those types of cities. I think news is very relevant. I think people do read the newspapers. They do... You know, I see people sitting on the trains and in the subways and, you know, read newspapers, you know. They could be reading tabloids. They could be reading sports. Um, they could, you know, I see a lot of people reading the Financial Times Chinese language edition, which actually is a pretty good paper in terms of information. Um, but they're not reading the paper for information that's going to contradict the government. And you don't find that in newspapers. You don't even find that online unless you know where to look. I think they're, they're reading the paper because they want to know sort of what the government line is. They want to know what's going on. And the government line is important because it could affect taxes. It could affect 
this policy. I'm not going to be able to get a license plate in Shanghai because they, they changed the rules and you know all of these, these things that relate to daily life. That, that type of news is very relevant to people. And they want to know that. I mean, what's the latest interest rate if I want to you know, buy, buy a new condo? Right? What's the real estate price situation? Right? So anything, any news items that are related to my personal or family wealth or my economic status or how I'm going to help my family or look out for myself so that I can adapt and survive, that news, that information is very valuable, I think is read widely. You know. But as far as news about you know international affairs or even like there right now it seems to me that the problem with censorship in China isn't even that there is censorship, it's that even if there wasn't censorship people would look. Like there's no demand for that kind of information or very little demand. Do you agree with that? Uh, I think yeah, I think there's not a lot of demand. Because I think the the, um, the portion of the population that's interested in that is very small. I think everything will change, sure. <laughs> but it'll it'll be slow. There has to be a reason, right? Why? I mean, how many people in the U.S. are interested in international news? Yeah. What's the number? Thirty percent of Americans have a passport. Some small number. Forty percent. I was going to say it's that high. I mean, I don't know what the number is, right? But but you know, are we really interested in international news? I mean, look how we were duped into going to war in Iraq. Yeah, there's some really interesting stats, too. Like, there was a, a survey that was done between the Academy of Social Sciences and the Merkel Foundation that found, like, in terms of the most trusted news sources online, actually Chinese domestic sources were more trusted than foreign sources, which was right. wild, but very, very interesting. Right. And, you know, there's enough nationalism, I think, also on the web that that people are inclined to assume that, say, a New York Times story or something will have a certain political slant that may naturally be anti-China and, and maybe sort of discount things that may be critical of yeah, the Chinese government right. that are coming from foreigners, you know. When, when criticism of the Chinese government comes from Chinese, you know, like is, is written by a Chinese journalist and gets posted on a bulletin board in China, I think that's very powerful and people trust it. But if it's written by a foreigner coming from an outside foreign news source, I think people tend to discount it a great deal because they... They kind of feel that you know these foreigners just trying to bash China and kind of get defensive. So. Absolutely, I agree 100. percent It's very different. How, how does the, the level of or the sense of nationalism fit in to uh, to the you know in the sense of priorities among the, the you know making a living and getting the new car and the, the dump? You've got um, I mean you think back to the first event of, of the Bush administration was the, the spy plane. And in a sense, I mean, we're lucky we're fighting with uh, Iraq and not some other handy uh, <laughs> opponent. Um, and having said that, you know, is there perception? I was there in '95, '96 uh, summers, and my wife is from Taiwan, and so that was an issue that we could yeah. talk about. And uh, you know, clearly there there is a sense of nationalism vis-à-vis Taiwan, but that's sort of an in, you know from their perspective an internal matter. But what is, how does nationalism vis-a-vis the United States or vis-a-vis Europe fit in at this point? I think nationalism is extremely important. I think a lot of people in the U.S. use nationalism as a code word for fascism mm-hmm. in China. They talk about nationalism in China, but what they really mean is, is, China, is China really fascist? Because that's how it, you know, fascism 
developed in Germany, right? Mm -hmm. Out of out of a renewed nationalism after after the First World War and the imposition of, of all of the economic and social controls in Germany. And out of that grew a, fa a nationalistic movement that grew into a fascist movement. So in many respects, people, people in the US or the West that criticize China for being overly nationalistic, you know, they're really saying, are they about to become, you know, come out of the, are the communists coming out of the closet and going to all of a sudden be fascists? So is it moving in the, what's the answer to that question? Well, the answer to that, I think the answer the to that question is, they've always been a single party they've dictatorship. They've always been nationalists. And it's I mean, always, nationalism yeah. has always been the main point. It's always been the yeah. point because China was torn apart in the late 1800s by the fall of the Qing dynasty, the division of the coastal cities by foreign powers. And, you know, it was diced up and sliced up. And we all tried, all the Western powers tried to, prevent China from being one unified country. So, then, so so there's a strong nationalism there. It's very, very strong and very, very powerful. And the availability of information and the integration is not diminishing that. It's uh, strengthening, it's strengthening it. that. Yeah, That's take technology I mean. as an example, right? right? Chinese standards, right? There's a 3G standard for, for mobile services that's been accepted by the World Telecommunications Forum developed by China. There are there are a plethora, two dozen Chinese standards that are being promoted against, against U.S. standards for technology, whether it be Wi-Fi encryption, whether it be you know, digital um, media broadcasting, whether it be 3G license. I mean, all of them. There's lots of them. And that's a nationalistic attitude. That's basically saying we're sick and tired of paying royalties to the U.S. companies for technology that we can invent. You just give us enough time. You know, we'll invent it. And we'll create our own standard, mm -hmm. and we'll we'll pay less royalty to the Western economies, and we'll have our own, which is precisely what the U.S. did vis-a-vis -vis Germany and vis-a-vis vis-a-vis Japan. It's a natural position for an emerging, strengthening world economic leader to want to standardize and thus benefit their ec economy. And that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. and to, to interject on the spy plane crisis, just quickly, really an anecdote that kind of supports. Point. I, I was I was reporting for CNN from from China during the spy plane incident, and uh, it was very very interesting the chat rooms and, and so on in China at the time. If uh, if the Chinese internet had had its say in what happened in the spy plane crisis, those the the the, the American crew would never have been sent back, and they would have been hanged. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the, it, it was it was very. People were very, very upset and felt the Chinese government had been very weak at compromising gold. Um, and, and so uh, that's something I think that really shocks a lot of Americans. But you know, the rage out on the street the day the, the, the crew got sent back was tremendous. We were very, very angry. Sure. Because the, the colonial occupation of China is something that has been relegated to the back pages of our textbooks in the mm -hmm. U.S. It is front and center in the Chinese public mindset. Front and center. And the Chinese government is not going to let any citizen ever forget the humiliation that they suffered, whether it is the Ikushuni uh, shrine issue in Japan, whether it is you know the, the U.S. occupation of coast or you know, the British occupation of Hong Kong, you name it. There's a long list. Mm -hmm. And every one of those examples is going to be maintained front and center. 
because it maintains the party's legitimacy as the leader of the country because they solved that problem. They kicked everybody out. They unified the country. That's the nucleus of their power. That's the credibility of their position. And we in the West underestimate how front and center it is in Chinese minds. Your example is, is testament to that. And there's many, many more examples. You know, when was it last, last spring in Shanghai? There was all these protests with the Japanese, right? I have a very good friend who's a Japanese who got, who got pummeled with fruits and ended up in the hospital. He was just going to his office, you know, and all of a sudden... No, so it's yeah. very on the surface. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, very much on the surface. I got attacked by a mob after the after the U.S. Uh, you yeah. know, bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. Yeah. Do, you, do you think part of that is well, it's orchestrated by the government because they can control the media? And do you think that the context that say your son and his gamer friends are having is going to cut against that and make kind of the younger generation say, well? You know, what's being taught to us in the textbooks and in the traditional media or the government-sponsored media, that's not really this, the only story, and that's not what I care about so much. I've got these friends all over the world. I hope so. I really do. As he blows them up. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think that younger people will, are, are in, naturally more open, less judgmental about history, about the past. But I think it would be it would be naive to think that young people in China are, 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 don't don't have as part of their DNA a degree of this nationalism. Mm-hmm. It's just like Americans have, a, have their DNA that we are individuals. And the individual is sacred. It's the same type of cultural embedded of values. So I think it's there. I think maybe you know you're younger, you're more flexible, you're more open, all of that. That's all very positive, and hopefully that can solve a lot of the issues. So we have two questions here. I don't know if yours is on point, because I saw Professor Fisher was a while ago. Is, is this related? It's something related to nationalism. Okay. I'm just wondering, for nationalism, what's a new thing? I mean, the, I think the party just had like a, a national meeting, like a national conference, whatever. Mm-hmm. And because the communism is dying right now, I think they're really having trouble to define this, like the theme of nationalism. Is it just a party expelled all those people, like all those colonials, or I'm just been wondering what's really unifying China. It seems like they should have a problem about unification now. I think that um, the, the, the job I would least like to have would be the job as head of the Communist Party School in Beijing, that's <laughs> policy, because it's very difficult to set, to answer your question. Right? What is the policy? Right? What is our justification for being in power and what are we trying to accomplish as a government because effectively the government policy now is laissez-faire that's that's the economic system in China, it's laissez-faire we will let the state-owned enterprises deal with the core segments and we'll control them, we'll ask them to pollute less we'll ask them to be less corrupt steal less money you know, and we're going to deal with that and we're going to let all the private entrepreneurs we're going we're gonna to encourage them you know, to start companies and go public on the NASDAQ and go public in Hong Kong and make a lot of money. And we're going to allow the real estate markets to develop and everyone's going to make money and own their own houses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's basically laissez-faire. Well, laissez-faire government policy across the board is only going to last so long. 
sooner or later you're going to need a positive reason as opposed to a passive reason to justify your position. Mm-hmm. And that's the question which I have no idea if it's answered yet or not, but my bet is nobody has a clue. Mm-hmm. And they're scared to death. And they don't know what to do. You know, that happens to a lot of politicians, right? No matter what system you're in, right? You don't know what's happening, you know, on Pennsylvania Avenue right now. They don't have a clue. Everything they've tried has failed. You know, they're killing citizens in a war that nobody supports anymore, and every, every domestic policy they've tried has failed, basically. So they're lost, too. You know, I don't know how they're going to figure it out, but I, all I can hope for in my lifetime is that laissez-faire continues for a while. I think that's what most Chinese want. They want laissez-faire to continue because their families will be better off, their kids will grow up healthy, you know, they'll have jobs, they'll get married, they'll have more kids, and the cycle will continue. And that's basically, you know, when you get, when you get into, you know, halfway through your life like I am, you know, those values begin to be more important. Um, but we're sort of off digital media and internet a bit. But to answer your question, I think that's... One of the um, things I found most interesting in your description of your investment policies was the uh, uh, your insistence that your organization, in contrast to some others, um, is determined to abide by uh, the legal rules in this area, mm-hmm. um, intellectual property rules in particular. Mm-hmm. Now, as best I can tell, the situation in China is one in which, um, although as members will World Trade Organization, they're formally obliged to um, modify their laws consistent with the TRIPS agreement and have. Mm-hmm. In practice, they're only very slowly tightening. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's um, something of a puzzle how domestic firms swim in this changing environment. And, and I'm also curious about how your company does. So, so here would be one example illustrative of this. It's, um, about two weeks ago, I met with um, several managers of, of Baidu in Beijing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you probably know Baidu is a very popular search engine there. Uh, well, the whole company is a ripoff of Google, but anyway, make your point. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Well, back to the nationalism thing, they don't actually see it quite that way. But of course. They, so they offer a wide variety of um, search engine services, but the, by far the most notorious is the deep links to sites where you can get um, unauthorized copies of sound recordings. And they've been sued by the major labels and lost at the trial level. Um, so are they stopping their deep links? No, they're not. They're persisting on because there will be a couple of years before an appeal is decided, and their view is that if they um, remove the deep links, they would be committing, this was their words, um, in English anyway, business suicide. They would be swamped by the competitors. Uh, so they feel obliged in this business environment to continue engaging in what a Chinese court has concluded is violative of the copyright system. Mm-hmm. And this strikes me as not unique, that uh, firms are trying to um, to some degree, modify their business models to comply uh, with the tightening rules, 
but not too much and too fast because it would be fatal as a business strategy. So you're a VC. How do you choose among these companies that are negotiating this gradually changing environment? It's very hard because I would have given my right hand to be in the early stage investment in Baidu, right? I kick myself every day that I didn't go into that deal. And I didn't really have a chance, but, you know, I would have liked to have been in that deal. I would have sold my stock by now. <laughs> but, you know... Just before the lawsuit. Uh, well, as soon as the lockup was over. Um, but it is a very difficult... Um, it's a very difficult line, and there isn't an, a good answer for it. I think my test is, can I sleep at night? It's really how I look at it. I view myself as a very ethical businessman. I have been for many years. I've never had any difficulty. I've worked in IBM and DEC, big companies, small companies. I've seen a lot of different value systems. Um, so, so we invest in a company, the company grows, and then we find out when, after it's gone public that it's, that it's breaking all these laws. So what, do we, what would I do in that situation? I'd probably start selling. I'd probably start selling my stock. I wouldn't unload it, but I would start selling it. And not because I'm breaking any laws, probably because you know I couldn't look the next entrepreneur in the eye and say, you better abide by these laws. Because if you don't, I'm not going to invest in your company. And yet, if I'm holding over here and with somebody who is a known violator as part of their core business strategy, then I'm to I've lost all credibility. So I would selfishly protect my credibility as an investor first and foremost, so that I could look the next guy in the face and say, you better follow the rules. But I can't, am I perfect? Can I be perfect? No. Absolutely not. We can just try our best. Yeah. Just to play devil's advocate on that point, though, with the flood of capital that you're seeing in China, you know, who's to say that there's not another venture capital firm that's going to turn the blind eye and come in, and if you don't invest, they'll be right there? There is. There is. There's probably five of them. Absolutely. I have to be willing to give up those deals. Right. So we made it. I'll give you another example from our portfolio. We made an investment in a, in a company that designs semiconductor chips that goes, goes into mobile devices for mobile TV. And they, they've written, basically, the, a computer chip is just a mathematical algorithm, a set of algorithms, right? So we made the, when we were making the investment during the due diligence, we looked at their algorithms. Right? And I had um, two independent contractors who I hired who didn't know each other and were one from Europe, one from the US, go look at their algorithms. And, and their job was not to tell me if they worked. Their job was, do you recognize anything that you've ever seen in your career? And these are people in their late 40s. They've been around, right? So they would not know everything, but they'd be able to say, oh, this is a commodity algorithm piece, and you can get this anywhere, and this is not a big deal. Or this, I've seen this before. I don't think they licensed this, or it didn't show up on their licensing list or whatever. So, so we would go in and look at it that deeply. You know, and we found an algorithm that we were not comfortable with, and we told them to take it out and rewrite it. And it added three weeks to the schedule. But they did it. And that's an example, real life example. It happened last fall, and that's when we did that. And now we, now we feel that this algorithm, this IP that is in this chip that's coming off the production line in three months, 
is it could be bought by Intel or could be bought by AMD or could be bought by Texas Instruments or Cirrus Logic or analog devices. We can go to that CEO and we say, buy our company for $20 million because we can tell you that this IP is clean. Did they? That, and that is an example of how we would, would approach it. Now, Baidu is a different situation where you can't control the IP in a services company like that. It's very difficult. In our investing, what we're doing, we're also trying to pick segments and pick products where we know we can say, because of what we've done, that this thing is clean. Now, it could still get dirty later on, right? Even if your laundry is clean, you can still dirty it later on. So that risk is always there, but we try to do as best we can. I have a question. Oh, well, just a very brief follow-on. Did they acknowledge the origin of that? I mean, had, it was, was there a lesson learned there, or did they... Uh... We didn't ask where it came from. Mm-hmm. We just said we didn't want it in there. Okay. Because if I ask them where it's yeah, from, sure. they're going to have to tell me, and they're going to lose face, and it's going to sour my relationship with them. So we just said, take it out. And they argued a bit, and eventually they took it out. Just a follow-up for this answer. Just the exit strategy your firm has been, like the, the company you've been investing in, are they just basic buyouts, or you have been, they have been like going Primarily um, trade, what's called a trade sale, yeah, bought by another company. Uh, by U.S. company or China, like bigger Chinese companies? So far, mostly U.S. European companies. Chinese companies don't quite have the capital right. to, to buy companies yet, although it's changing. It's changing. So do you think the, those U.S. companies are really um, careful about uh, IP rights? I mean, have they been doing additional due diligence when they're... Absolutely. Them? Absolutely. Yeah, they won't buy. I mean, a public company, a public semiconductor company in the U.S. has to guarantee in its uh, disclosures to the SEC that to its best knowledge and ability, it's an intellectual property that it has purchased is clean and is not in violation of any laws. and. And if there are liabilities associated with that intellectual property when they buy it, then they have to declare those liabilities publicly in their K-1s every quarter, and that could affect their stock price because there's an undisclosed liability that has an open end to it, and that is not a good thing for a public company. Mm-hmm. And then you have Sarbanes-Oxley, which is a whole other situation. right? So what we do in our investments is when we start a company, um, within the first quarter of the company starting, we begin to apply Sarbanes-Oxley rules to the company. Even, even when it is not being uh, reviewed as Sarbanes-Oxley compliant. You know what Sarbanes-Oxley is, oh, right? Okay. So even though it, it, it may not be sold for two years, we begin to apply the principles from day one. Now, this is a type of investment philosophy and strategy that you know, a Chinese VC would never do. So this is, this is one of the reasons. Now I'm selling, right? <laughs> you yeah. know, I'm selling. So one of the ways that we have been able to be effective as investors is we're investing in companies and creating companies that we know can be sold. So accounting, legal, and IP rules are the three things that American company enterprises value. That's what they put all of their issues on. So we are creating our firm to be known for creating valuable early stage companies in China that meet this criteria, even though the criteria is, you know, half the companies in the U.S. don't comply with this criteria, including intellectual property protection. Intellectual property law, in my opinion, is a joke. Because you self-regulate intellectual property theft. Engineers self-regulate themselves. That's why the law works. The law works because we respect the law. Not because the law has anything inherent in it which is good or bad or effective. It's because we self-regulate ourselves. Right? I'm looking over your shoulder at the algorithm you're writing. Right? I would never do that. 
I would self-regulate myself. I would never do it. That's the key to intellectual property protection, in my opinion. Is that it's it's a it's a, a cultural thing. I don't mean ethnic culture. I mean it's a work culture thing. And if you adopt that culture in your in your mindset and how you approach then this intellectual property thing, it goes away because, as you point out, the laws are all there. It's just a question of are people going to start complying with them? So. Oh. Sorry. Everybody knows it was enough to do business in China, and plus this complex change and a war in ethics. Um, and I would like to hear your worst nightmare uh, in terms of your project in China. Uh, one of businesses is already messy enough. Now you're doing an investment project. You're not actually running the thing, but you're investing in something that, that the local. Mm. Uh, I heard from your background, you know, you have a good feeling of how Chinese operate. Uh, but I'm sure you, you have nightmare scenario experience you have. Mm. What's the worst case you have in terms of uh, business ethical product and, and imbalance? I, I would like to give you the best. Oh, okay. Well, the worst case first. The worst case was four years ago, I was doing uh, investing as an individual before Dragonvest was created, as an angel investor in a Chinese company. And it was a chip design company, and I had done a lot of work with this team, and I thought it, they were doing some interesting stuff. And, and the investment was a quarter million dollars. And um, I knew the team for like nine months, whatever. And um, I wired the money to their bank account. And the company disappeared. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that, no, that happens more frequently than people. Yeah, yeah. So now, so now, the way I fix that problem is that whenever we make an investment in a Chinese company, either myself or my partner are co-signatories to the bank account. Mm. Okay. The bank account, you cannot write a check. And, and the nice thing is that HSBC, HSBC operates in China now, right? So we use Western Bank, HSBC, or other bank, and you need two signatures on every, on every transaction, and one of them has to be myself or my partner. And your best case? The best case is, you know, is not yet here, actually. The best case is still evolving. It's an investment we made about three months ago. The company is called Wireless China. And it is a very exciting wireless value-added service company that's launching its service in Guangdong right now. And um, I think it's going to be, could be a, a huge success. The best case in terms of ethical practices? Mm. Not necessarily Yeah, ethical practices, I think, other than that one example, I think everything's been okay. Yeah. Everything's been okay. Yeah, we don't have a lot of problems because we learned from that one example. We're fast learners. You know, when you lose a quarter million dollars, you, you learn quickly. Yeah. I understand that you invest in companies that uh, adhere to American copyright laws and IP laws. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So that they will be of interest to, or potentially of interest to American companies. But um, earlier on, you indicated that a lack of Laws, whether it's privacy laws or IP laws or 
whatever other ones, is one reason for innovation. Separate from your own interest and your own criteria for what you apply for investing in the company. That's true. Is that part of the um, all the excitement happening in innovation in China right now? Um, in addition to the massive population, you also said that just the size alone helps this big weight. Yeah, I think so. Uh, medical devices is an area where we've started making some investments in the last few months, and I think that's a good example for what you're talking about, because um, companies that are developing medical devices have a freer reign in China than they do here um, from a regulatory perspective and an approval perspective. Um, so um, they're not encumbered by you know, all the reimbursement rules of all the healthcare systems here in the U.S., and that often will control or determine how new products are developed. Because if you can't, if you develop a great product but you're not going to get it reimbursed, then, you know, why do it, right? Whereas in China, um, yeah, there's a reimbursement process, but it's, it's far different. So you could have the ability for a company to create a really good product, and it could come to volume production and be approved and then be exported to the U.S., where, where it, could be, it, could be, it could be used, because it has now the, um, the, uh, you know, the patient sample sets are wide enough and the studies have been done to prove the technology, whereas here you may not have ever gotten the company off the ground because nobody would have funded it because you couldn't get a reimbursement. So it's a complex example, but I think that there are... are now, that company, in our mind, would still have to adhere to our, our rules, right, our guidelines, but the, the whole company itself would have, have a higher probability of coming to life in the context of China than it might here in the West. So I think there are examples of that. And, then, and eventually, we hope, of course, that the Chinese market itself is going to continue to mature so that these companies can be created and then sell our products in China and make money, make real money not, you know, trading money. I've been hearing a lot from various people, small technology companies, online media companies, and so on, and like, you know, just the way they describe their efforts to get into the China market just Mm. sound like they they just went and took drugs and, you know, kind of completely (laughs) lost their minds. you know, it's like, oh, I met this guy at a banquet, and we were so impressed with him because his English was so good, and now he's going to be our partner, and, you know, he had this great idea, you know. And it, you hear this a lot. Right. And and that people are so eager, and often fairly small companies, you know, who who don't have anybody on the ground in China who really have no idea what they're getting into, partnering with people they've done no due diligence on. Right. Um, kind of, how prevalent is this? Would you say, in terms of a, a percentage of the deals that are getting made these days? And you see it happening on a sort of large corporate scale too. You'll you'll see. I mean, I've heard some incredible stories over the past few years of major companies. The CEO goes in, gets wined and dined by a bunch of shysters, right. and signs a deal. Right. Um, and and then their underlings have to clean up the mess because it completely doesn't work. Right. But, I mean, why is it that people just seem to completely lose all reason when they're... I don't know. You know it must be like the magnetic pole on the North Pole when they mm-hmm. pass over the North Pole on their way into Beijing. It looks like all <laughs> semblance to reality. Mm-hmm. It must be a magnetic thing. I don't know. But I agree. I see it all the time. 
all the time. I mean, my rule of thumb is, you know, if you meet somebody and their English is impeccable, don't do business with them. <laughs> because they spent their entire career learning English. Mm-hmm. What did they learn about business? What did they learn about finance? What did they learn about investment? What did they know about operations? What did they know about a balance sheet and a cash flow income statement? And, you know, what do they know about that? And what do they know about dealing with the relevant ministries that they're going to have to right. sweet talk? If they, if they speak English really well, that means they were in the foreign language department. Yeah. The foreign language department is the liberal part of every university. It's not the conservative part. Yeah. That means that they did everything they could to stay away from um, you know, the political <laughs> classes. They did everything they could to be non-conforming. They stretched every boundary away from where business is done. Right, so if you're a language student, it's different the lower, younger generation. But but for a large part, it's exactly what you said. I mean, if you speak really foreign language really well, you're probably a terrible business person. Or, or at least that somehow they think that speaking, that the fact that this guy speaks English qualifies right. him or her right. to be their perfect business partner in right. whatever industry. It, um, it shows that Americans have a tremendous inadequacy and insecurity. The minute we find somebody who can speak our language, mm-hmm. we feel better. Yeah. We feel more comfortable and safe. And, and, and they don't sort of try out more than one person to see, you know, or, or check on this person's background to see if they're, if they're known in the industry or, you know, kind of basic homework. So often, you know, I'll, people will call me up and say, hey, we're going to do this thing. What do you think? Does it think it sounds good? And I'm like... Have you checked with so and so to see if they've ever heard of this person? Right. Uh, it's all over the place. Oh, we need to. And between now and 2008 in the Olympics, it's just going to get worse. Yeah. It's so, just going to get worse. So, what what percentage of these these deals happening do you think are just going to result in people losing their shirts? Well, I think 50 percent of the capital that's gone into China in 05 and 06 from Sand Hill Road is lost already. Gone. It sounds about right. It's gone. It's never. It's never going to come back. Yeah. And the and those VCs that have gone in, they're going to go one cycle, which is usually about three years, maybe four, and they'll be out. They won't survive. They won't last, because they. What do they know from China? You know. So you got to think about it. You've got an ethnic Chinese investment partner, who is an ABC, American-born Chinese, right? They look Asian, right? So, you know, so, so they must know something about Asia because they look Asian, right? They must know how to do business in Asia because they look Asian, right? And they're putting hundreds of millions of dollars into Chinese companies from San Ho Road. What do they know? And, and it's happening all over the place. It's hap- That's why... The smartest people that have made the most money in investing in China are the Hong Kong businessmen and women because they, they have been doing this since 1975 and they know exactly how to make the money, how to get in, how to make the money and get out. And then they leave the sector for the white guys coming over from the U.S. where the margins have gone from 50% to 10%. And then we go in and we say, oh, we can make 10%, 15% margin. Isn't that great? We have a China strategy, but we, what we don't realize is that the Hong Kong businessmen and women were there five years ahead of time and they made 50% margins for three years. And we're trying to make 10 or 15% for the next five. But you can do that math all day long. Right? We think we're making progress, but we're not. 
So what? So this like this like veil over a lot of Western businessmen and women, they have no idea. They just they just go. Whoosh. So, so what percentage of Chinese startups in Beijing, Shanghai, and Guangzhou do you think are just pretty much meant to get three years' worth of easy money off the stupid VCs? Yeah, well, the same number that did it here in 1999 <laughs> and 2001. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Any trouble from the government in terms of um, the area you are investing in? Only support. Our biggest problem is to go to as few banquets as we can. And no trouble getting the money out? No, because the money never goes in. We invest in uh, uh, holding companies outside of China. All the IP, the patents, the equity, cash is outside China. And it's, the money is taken into China on a monthly budgetary basis to pay local expenses. So the money never goes in. So it can come out. You keep your holding companies in the U.S. or you... could be U.S. or British Virgin Islands or Caymans or Hong Kong or Singapore. Not unlikely Singapore. Taxes are too high. If, 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 a question about um, you know, doing business as a VC in China. Over here, you would have a great support network: the Rolodex of friends, consultants, advisor. You know, all the different types of um, mm -hmm. media publications you can go to and Gartner and Porsche, blah, 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 to sort of help you fix things, change things, bring in resources, whatever. I mean, what do you, you know, in China that doesn't exist to a great extent. Well, how do you... Oh, we have the same, same situation in China. Exactly because, the yeah, same. Yeah, it's a human network. It's a human network, yeah. It's not institutionalized in, in agencies or organizations, but it's human network. I mean... Some of my students from 1980 are in very important positions in ministries and in companies, for instance. So it's a human network that matters, and it's very extensive. Yeah, we have a very we have a full time person in our office whose only job is to manage business cards. Yeah, that's her only job, and she draws maps on the on the on the whiteboard, who who, who we met through whom and how this person relates to that and it helps us understand who's who. We, we take that networking part as extremely seriously because that's how Chinese uh, society is, 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 is constructed. So we have to exploit it in order to be effective.